Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. We're going to pick up the story in verse 45. And what happens here is in some sense a little surprising. Because you would think that when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, that would have put an end to the questions, to the doubts, and especially to the opposition that existed against Jesus. I mean, a man who was dead and buried for four days was raised to life by the mere words of Jesus. And there were witnesses, and plenty of them. And not only that, this happened very near to Jerusalem. Bethany, where Lazarus and Mary and Martha lived, was just across the valley from the city of Jerusalem. The religious leaders could have easily gone and investigated, asked questions, interviewed witnesses, tried to find out what exactly had happened. But here is the sobering reality that we see in this story. Not everyone is interested in the truth. Some are more interested in political consequences than they are in the kingdom of God. Now, if that feels like I just slipped into talking about today instead of Jesus' day, there's a reason for that. I'm talking first about about what happened in Jesus' day, what John is going to show us in John chapter 11. But what he tells us happened in that day sounds so familiar to us today because Solomon knew what he was talking about when he said there's nothing new under the sun. We just need to have our minds shaped and renewed by the scriptures so that we see and understand what is happening when it happens. So let's listen together to John 11. I'm going to start in verse 45. I'll read to the end of the chapter. And we'll see what happened immediately after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. John says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people. Not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? 
Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. There was a mixed response to what Jesus did. When he raised Lazarus from the dead, we might expect that everyone who was there, that everyone who witnessed it, that everyone who saw what happened would believe. But that's not what happened. Even some of those who were there didn't believe. And there's something already for us to learn from that. There is absolutely nothing you can do that will convince everyone to believe. Nothing. If Jesus himself can raise someone from the dead in front of people and some of them go, "Mm, no, I still don't believe you, then there's nothing you or I can do that can make sure that someone's going to believe. Some people just aren't going to believe. And there's nothing you can do about it. But some of those who were there did believe. John tells us that many, many believed in him. Many of the Jews who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. And that doesn't surprise us. That's what we would expect. Plenty of people, when they saw that, you would think they would say to themselves, I mean, if that doesn't make you believe, what will? I mean, this, this lines up with everything Jesus has been telling us about who he is. Only a man sent from God could do something like this. Only a man who has life and the ability to give life to others could do something like this. Surely this is the kind of thing that the Messiah would be able to do when the Messiah came. He must be the Messiah. He must be the one promised by God, now sent by God, come to rescue us. So many people believed in him. But verse 46 says, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now this feels a little bit like, you know, a a kid at school going to tell the teacher that so-and-so did such-and-such, when that kid really didn't do anything wrong, they just know the teacher already doesn't like that kid, and so all they have to do is say something, and that kid's probably going to get in trouble? I mean, what are they even telling on Jesus about? Hey, Jesus raised somebody from the dead. Aren't you mad? They are. He didn't do anything wrong. You would think... That when people got word of this, they would think, this is the kind of guy we need to keep around. He can solve our problems. He can ease our troubles. He can raise people from the dead. And yet there are some who just, you're never you not going to believe what he did. you got to hear what Jesus did. They go and tell the Pharisees, who they know are Jesus' enemies. They know they want to get rid of Jesus. And they tell him about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And so here's what they do. Verse 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council. And they said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. What are we to do? What do you mean, what are we to do? (laughs) What do you need to do? Believe. Listen to him. 
But they don't. They don't think, you know, maybe we've been wrong about this guy. Some of those things he did, you know, maybe we thought he was pulling the wool over our eyes or, you know, just kind of able to make us think he did some of those things. But there are lots of witnesses to this miracle. There's no way we can deny it. There's no way he could have done this if he wasn't sent by God. Maybe we need to reconsider our position on Jesus. But they don't do that. Instead of seeing this as the fulfillment of promises and prophecies, instead of seeing this as an opportunity, as a blessing, as a gift from God, they see it as a problem to be solved. What are we going to do? How are we going to respond? They don't even seem to dispute the fact that Jesus is doing these miracles. They just say, this man performs many signs. What are we going to do? In verse 48, they express their concern. This is what they're worried about. They say, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. If he keeps doing all these, if he keeps doing this kind of stuff, before long, all the Jews are going to believe in Jesus, and then we're really going to be in trouble. Why? He said, they say, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Well, what do they mean by that? What they mean by that is, of course, so Rome, of course, is occupying Israel at this point. Right? The, the Jews still, they live in Israel, but the Romans are in charge. There's Roman soldiers everywhere. Pilate, who later Jesus is going to be brought before, he's the Roman governor over the region of Judea, which is the area surrounding Jerusalem. So the Romans are in charge. The Jewish people don't have full liberty and freedom. They do get to live in their land, but they are under the rule of Rome. And what they are afraid of is that if enough people believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah, and remember, many of the people believed that what the Messiah was mainly going to do was deliver Israel from her political enemies. So many of the people, for example, back in John 6, remember when Jesus um, fed the 5,000? What was the response of the crowd? Let's make this guy king. Let's put him on a throne. Well, what happens if you put a guy on a throne and you make him king when you've already got a Caesar who's in charge? There's going to be a conflict, right? There's going to be a war. There's going to, or Rome's going to see that as an attempt to overthrow their rule, and they're going to stamp it out. So what the council is saying is, if Jesus keeps doing these signs and more and more people believe that he's the Messiah, eventually we're going to have a rebellion on our hands. And then what's going to happen is that the Romans are going to take away, they say, both our place and our nation. Our place meaning uh, the temple or perhaps even the whole land. And then our nation, of course, our our identity as a people. We're not going to get to continue to exist as a nation. That is what they are afraid of. That's what they care most about. While some people believed, others cared more about political and national preservation than they cared about the truth about Jesus. 
They were worried about what would happen to them if everyone believed in Jesus, instead of being worried about what would happen if they rejected Jesus. Which, by the way, had serious consequences not many years later. They were worried about losing their place and their nation instead of being worried about missing the Messiah God had promised to send for their nation. They were worried about the consequences, but they should have been more concerned about the truth. Let us not make the same mistake. Their political calculation gets worse when Caiaphas speaks up. In verse 49, John says, One of them, Caiaphas, who was, priced, uh, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. So Caiaphas is the high priest. That's the highest uh, religious office in the land. The high priesthood goes all the way back to Aaron, Moses' brother, who was designated by God as the first high priest. And the high priest was, of course, over all the other priests. And one of the privileges of the high priest was that he was the only one who was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and then later the temple, which is the earthly throne room of God, so to speak. That's where the Ark of the Covenant is. That is God's footstool. That's where God's presence rests. And one time a year, the high priest is allowed to go into the very presence of God. And this man, who's been given that privilege and responsibility, says to the people who are concerned about the politics of what Jesus, people believing in Jesus might cause, the consequences that might come from that. He says to them, you know nothing at all, not because he disagrees with them, but because he thinks they have not yet gone far enough. He says, verse 50, Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas's political calculation is this. If we have a choice between letting Jesus perform signs and wonders and even raise people from the dead and possibly bring down the wrath of Rome upon us and killing Jesus and preserving our nation, it's not even a question what we should do. Isn't it obvious? It's so much better, Caiaphas says, if we just kill one person to preserve the whole country. No brainer, Caiaphas says. Now, we rightly recoil at such talk because it's about Jesus. But do we recognize it when we hear it in our own day? Caiaphas is not the only person who's ever thought like that or talked like that. But what's significant in particular about Caiaphas is when he said that, he unintentionally and supernaturally spoke something true. Notice what John says in verse 51. He says, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. In other words, in his office as high priest, one who's been anointed to serve God and lead the people, 
God actually spoke through Caiaphas something true when Caiaphas meant to speak something evil. When it says that he didn't speak this or say this of his own accord, it doesn't mean that God somehow forced him or that Caiaphas didn't want to say this. It just means that beyond what Caiaphas intended to say, God superintended that Caiaphas would say something more than Caiaphas meant to say. When Caiaphas said it's better that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish, what he meant was we get Jesus out of the way to preserve us, our nation, our people, our place. But what actually came out from that, that was true, that was his unintentional prophecy. As one person said, he he speaks here better than he knows. What he is saying is that what needs to happen is that Jesus does need to die for the nation. Just not in the way Caiaphas was thinking. And then John says, not for the nation only, verse 52, but to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. In other words, it is necessary for Jesus to die. It is better for Jesus to die in this sense. If Jesus does not die for us, we will perish. Not just the Jewish people, but all people will perish in our sin and suffer the consequences of it eternally. But if Jesus dies in our place, as Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53, that he bears our iniquities, He is crushed for our sins. If he does that, if he dies and suffers in our place, then not just the Jewish people who believe, but all people who believe, the the children of God who have been scattered abroad, John says in verse 52, will all be gathered into one people, a, a holy chosen nation, just like Israel was. The church, the body of Christ, the people of God, will be rescued and forgiven and redeemed and made new. This is what John has been talking about from the very beginning of the book. In John 1, he says about the coming of Jesus, He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. And in chapter 10, Jesus told us, As he was speaking to the Jews, he said, I have other sheep who are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. What is happening here is this. What Caiaphas meant for evil, God meant for good. Do you remember when Joseph in the Old Testament was hated by his brothers, thrown into a pit. They were going to kill him, but they decided, nah, let's make some money off of him. So they sold him, and he was sent into Egypt. And then in Egypt, he got put in jail, and on and on. He suffered so much. right? But then, in the end, God raised him up to second in command in Egypt. 
enabled him to interpret Pharaoh's dreams about the coming famine so they could store up grain so that one day his brothers, his whole family, would come to Egypt and be preserved alive because of God raising up Joseph to that position in Egypt. And you remember what Joseph told them? His brothers were afraid, man, he's going he's, he's to hate us. He's going to be so mad at us. We're in so much trouble. And now he's got the power and we don't. But you remember what Joseph said to them? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. What Caiaphas meant for evil, to put Jesus to death, God meant for good. Caiaphas meant to take Jesus' life, but Jesus has already told us in chapter 10 that he is deliberately going to lay down his life and no one could take it from him and then he would take it up again, rising on the third day. And we know why he did it too. He did it for the sheep. He did it for the lost. He did it for sinners. He did it to give life and salvation to everyone who believes in him from every tribe and every nation and every tongue. That's the good news. That's the gospel. That's what we invite you to believe if you're not a Christian. That's what Jesus came for. That's why we worship him and celebrate him because he's God who came to save people like us. Now finally, in this chapter, we can see God's hand at work behind the evil plan of Caiaphas in part because of when all this takes place. Notice it says in verse 53 that from that time they made plans to put Jesus to death. They didn't just want to arrest him. They didn't just want to hide him away. They wanted to kill him. And so Jesus went somewhere else briefly for a time to Ephraim in verse 54. And then verse 55 tells us, That it was Passover time in Jerusalem. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, John says, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And everybody was asking. Verse 56, they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? The Passover feast was a remembrance of how God had rescued His people from slavery in Egypt. It had been over a thousand years before this time. And the people of God gathered each year to remember how God had rescued them, how God had delivered them, how the Passover lamb had been slaughtered for each household and the blood put over the doorpost so that God's judgment would pass over his people as it struck the Egyptians, and then he would bring his people out and ultimately bring them into the promised land. Jesus, we know, is going to die shortly after this moment. He's going to die at Passover. The people who have gathered early for Passover to prepare themselves, they are seeking Jesus Wondering if he's going to come to the feast or not. We know that he will. The leaders are seeking to get rid of Jesus. Verse 57 says the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. And we know what happens. We know Judas, one of his own disciples, sells him out for 30 pieces of silver, betrays him, leads a group of soldiers to him. We know that Jesus goes willingly 
Even though Peter, at least among his disciples at first, tried to fight for Jesus, Jesus told him to put away his sword. That's not what we're doing here. Jesus goes willingly with those who came to arrest him. He stands before Herod. He stands before Pilate. He does not attempt to defend himself. As Isaiah said, he's like a sheep before his shearers who's silent. And just as John the Baptist said early in the Gospel of John to the crowds of people as Jesus came, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus went willingly to the cross as the Lamb to shed His blood so that we could be covered, not by the blood of a literal Lamb, but by the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world so that God's judgment would pass over us. What Jesus would do at this Passover would eclipse what happened at the first Passover because it fulfills what happened at the first Passover. Because as Paul says, Jesus, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He laid down his life not only for the Jewish people, but also for Egyptians, Greeks, Romans, people from all over the world to deliver them not merely from physical slavery, as significant as that is, but from slavery to sin and death, that we might enjoy life in God's presence forever. All of that is far more important than any political calculation or consequence. That is what Jesus taught us to pray for when we say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom. Come. Let's pray.